Thank you very much for your patience. Um, we're about to commence. The RMIT University acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which the university stands. RMIT University respectfully recognises elders both past and present. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Dale and I'm the Chair of the Bridge of Hope, which is proudly associated with the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative. And I welcome you to the RMIT's panel presentation, Miscarriages of Justice, Exposing Flaws in the Criminal Justice System. <coughs> We're delighted to welcome Professor David Hayward, Dean of the School of Global Urban and Social Studies, Kel Blair, former Australian Police Officer and Chief Commissioner of the Victoria Police, Leanna Buchanan, Executive Director of the Federation of Community Legal Centres and Victorian Law Reform Commissioner, Carol McCarkis, Chief Executive Officer of the Victorian Association for the Care and Resettlement of Offenders, Michael Wells, Victorian Manager of Shine for Kids, Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. I would like to also note apologies from amongst others, the Honourable Michael Kirby, former Justice of the High Court of Australia, who offered his regrets on this occasion. Professor the Honourable David de Kretzner, um, former Governor of Victoria and patron of the Bridge of Hope Foundation. Martin Bakula, the Attorney General, Minister Martin Foley, Minister Jenny McCarkas, the Director of the Office of Public Prosecutions, although we're pleased to welcome several members of his office. Dan Morey, the retired, I should say, Lieutenant, not Lieutenant, Colonel of the US Marine Corps, and David Hicks lawyer, who you will all recall. He is also the author of the book In the Company of Cows, and he's given that over as a number of prizes for tonight. This evening's topic addresses the fact that miscarriages of justice do occur in Victoria. For a wrongly convicted person, the consequences are devastating. This forum brings together leading Victoria criminal justice experts to explore the issue. The panel will discuss causal factors and steps that can be taken to help reduce the incidence of miscarriages of justice and better facilitate their correction where a wrongful conviction has occurred. Each of our speakers will speak for 15 to 20 minutes, so we'll seek to impose what I call the High Court rule on special leave. After which time I will invite questions from the audience. At the end of the evening, the winners of book prizes <coughs> will be drawn, followed by an invitation to join us for refreshments. I would like to welcome to the stand retired Supreme Court of Victoria Judge Frank Vincent, Forensic Genetics and Molecular Biology Specialist and Senior Research Development Officer Victoria Police Forensic Services Department, Dr. K. Valentine, <coughs> Principal of 
Melbourne's largest specialist criminal law practice with over 33 years experience as a criminal defence lawyer, Mr. Robert Starry, partner of Startnet Legal, perhaps best known for his work in successfully representing convicted innocent Farah Jama on appeal, Mr. Kamani Bowden, lawyer, producer, author, advisor on Aboriginal justice and human rights to the Victorian Commissioner for Children and Young People, Julian Buxton. I will now introduce as our first speaker, uh, Frank Vincent. Let me just add to some of the words I've said about Frank. He's a person who, to some extent, has been a mentor to a generation of lawyers, upon generation, upon generation. He still is actively involved in dealing with young lawyers, but he's an inspiration to some that are shall I say, not saying, yeah, I claim itself. Many years as a judge, many years as a barrister, many, many uh, murder trials under his belt at a time when it was a capital offence, so the ultimate sacrifice occurred if the person were convicted. Since uh, retiring, if you can use that term, He's more active than most people in active life, active working life. Since retiring, he's devoted himself to a lot of continuing legal research and inquiries, including um, the inquiry into the wrongful conviction of Farajan. So, without further ado, I'd welcome Frank. Not too sure about this. Generation on generation <laughs> Bad enough being old, it's another thing to have it in for suppose. <laughs> You're supposed to get that and uh, regard me as being young, vital. <laughs> Use your imagination. <laughs> it is an uncomfortable, disturbing, but nevertheless, undeniable reality that there is no such thing as a perfect system of justice. And it is clear that miscarriages of justice cannot be entirely eliminated from our system. What that means is that what we must do is endeavour to reduce their incidence to the extent that it is humanly possible to do so and to ensure that we respond appropriately when such matters uh, are detected. This has not always been the case, and there are a multitude of factors that have contributed to it. It is perhaps um, rather trite to go back to the very basic character of our criminal justice system, but I think it is important to, to do so. 
our system has evolved over a long period of time. Basically, we have had to devise structures to determine whether antisocial behaviour was engaged in and whether or not a particular individual or individuals could be held responsible for it. In doing that, for most of our history and in most uh, sets of circumstances, we have relied upon the evidence of what people we call witnesses have said they heard or otherwise observed. It's been recognised from a very early stage that that is a process that is fraught with potential error. People do not always tell the truth in these circumstances. People are not always reliable historians. Their observations can be coloured by all kinds of considerations of which they may or may not be aware. But nevertheless, the consequences of reliance upon what they have told us, that they have seen or heard, can be dramatic. They can and indeed have resulted in the execution of people. What we've done in order to deal with that potential is to establish a whole set of principles of law and rules of evidence. They've created a very complex system that basically what they, they, they do is act as a filtration system to try and get rid of what might be called the white noise and get down to what can be seen to be reliable material. This system has not evolved as a result of scientific analysis or the forms of modelling that are accustomed uh, to the, that we are accustomed to seeing in other disciplines, but upon what we have regarded as the experience of the law. And to some extent, many of our rules that we have developed over the period have been the consequence of the prejudice of one generation becoming the embedded principles of law for future generations. Thus we decided that we could not accept women and children as reliable historians as to what had occurred. These became principles. We developed a whole set of rules about them. And now they're slowly being undone. Now that, those rules created a quite different set of potential miscarriages of justice viewed not from the perspective of the perpetrators or alleged perpetrators, but miscarriages of justice which emerged from the very structure of the law itself and to those who were actual victims of criminal behaviour. And we haven't yet straightened out all of the elements of that sort of injustice. We've still got quite a way to go 
Miscarriages of justice can operate both ways. The rules that we've devised are being intended to protect the innocent against conviction, not to stand as obstructions to the conviction of the guilty. We sometimes do not understand that when we see those rules in operation in different cases, but that is what their purpose is. All of our determinations in the courts are made on the basis of what are findings of fact. But what are these facts? They are working hypotheses. They are seldom objectively demonstrable facts. They are conclusions that we have reached on the basis of the material that is available to the court at the time. And they have very often a subjective quality about them. But once we determine that this hypothesis is to be accepted, then it becomes a fact. And that fact is the basis upon which our decision-making rests. You can see that there are potentials for error and for miscarriages of justice at any point along this process. It can occur at the very time at which a matter is either reported to or detected by the police. Do they approach the material, the information available at the crime scene in an appropriately open-minded fashion or not? Do they come to conclusions too quickly in relation to what may have occurred and then rationalise behaviours and their own investigations in consequence, limiting the scope of what they do? Are the matters dealt with appropriately at the level of prosecutorial or defence work in the preparation of trial? The JAMA case was fascinating in the sense that when I went through the material, and it's in the report, it seemed to me clear as crystal that he had been processed rather than there having been the kind of analysis that one might hope to find in the investigation and prosecution of such a serious matter. The case itself was inherently absurd. On its face, it was nonsense. And yet, it proceeded through the entirety of our legal system, right up to the point where there was an appeal pending within a relatively few weeks, before the right questions were asked, and they were asked by Brett Sonnet in the Office of Public Prosecutions, who for the first time confronted the unreality, said, this is nonsense. How the hell, in effect, did this happen? So these miscarriages of justice can occur at any point in the process. 
Do our appeal process, do our appeal mechanisms address them properly? The answer is sometimes definitely not. It is noteworthy in this regard that if you look at some of the major examples of this current of justice that have emerged over recent times, they've not been the subject of decisions in courts of appeal or even in the High Court, but in subsequent Royal Commissions. That's what happened in the case of Splat in South Australia, the Chamberlain case, the inquiry which was conducted into the Eastman matter quite recently. Our appeal processes do not lend themselves to the kind of analysis that would necessarily detect a number of these sources of miscarriage of justice. Broadly speaking, they operate on the basis that the determination of facts has been a function of the jury, is left entirely to the jury, and they accept those findings unless it becomes clear that those findings simply could not have been made on that material. Once you get beyond that very, very extreme fringe, it becomes very difficult for uh, courts to intervene under the existing framework. In addition to the kinds of evidence that I've spoken about, what people say they saw and heard, and that still constitutes the bulk of evidence which is given in our criminal trials. We also rely upon people we accept to be experts. Now, these are people who are regarded by the system as having specialist training or understanding that the rest of us do not possess. That very acknowledgement gives those people, those experts, a, an influence, a power in the decision-making process that can in fact, on some occasions, overwhelm the, the other understandings of the, of the, the jury. In the JAMA case, it was fascinating again. The prosecution approached that court saying, we do not know how, we do not know where the alleged rape could have occurred. We have no scenario whatever to offer in relation to the circumstances surrounding it. The only thing we do know is that a sample of DNA was detected on a swab taken from the, the alleged victim. The DNA of the accused was on that swab, therefore he must have had intercourse with her. She clearly had not consented to intercourse, 
therefore he had raped them. It was the only case that I have ever personally encountered in which every single element of the crime was established by the one piece of evidence. And a piece of evidence which stood in direct conflict with everything else known. But the power of that piece of evidence was such that all of the other known material ceased to have any bearing upon the outcome. This means that we really need to deal very carefully with evidence that possesses this character. We need to do a number of things in relation to it. I have grave doubts myself that our current trial by jury system is capable of accommodating an appropriate evaluation of some of that evidence. I think we may need a separate process for that evidence to be evaluated before it is presented in the courtroom and at that stage it can be placed into an appropriate context in the, in the matrix of material before the court. But to ask a jury, for example, to determine which of two sets of statistics which underpin the probabilities ratio in DNA analysis is just nonsense in my view. And I'm not saying that in some kind of elitist view of the, um, of, with respect to jury, but it would apply to me because how on earth could someone other than someone highly skilled in that, that discipline have any real capacity to evaluate the kind of evidence that, that has been produced? We need to ensure that our processes are rigorous at every step along the way. Our police and investigators must be appropriately trained must be approach their work with the right kind of objective attitude to the task that they're performing. And that's not easy. That is not easy, particularly when they're attending scenes and circumstances which are plain bloody horrifying and difficult to cope with. But that's got to be a constant struggle for them. Both sides of the the uh, adversary system have to do their work properly to ensure that, that the tests and the standards and the various endeavours we have made to operate filtration systems to reduce error are vigorously pursued and indeed we do manage to minimise the risk of error. We need to adopt new processes with respect to the way in which we handle our scientific evidence and our medical evidence. And we need also, I think at the end of the day, to have some kind of reserve mechanism of the kind that exists in other jurisdictions for a, 
uh, a criminal case review commission process. They do exist in other places. They act as the ultimate filter and hopefully will reduce the kinds of potentials that still exist. However hard we try, and we will still have that potential. With respect to expert evidence, perhaps conclude by just referring to a case which arose in the 1600s in England. Two women were on trial for the crime of witchcraft. A local doctor from Norwich was called to give evidence on the ways of witches and how they would be identified their characteristic behaviours. And he referred to research work which had been done by a specialist in Denmark who had, um, it seemed, considerably more experience with witches that are apparently more common in Denmark than they were in England at the time. And uh, on the basis of this combined evidence, as learned, um, as a learned expert in the area, the jury convicted the two women who were executed on the following day. That's an horrific story. It's a story which relates to reliance upon, the uncritical reliance upon expert testimony, very limited understanding of the, of the situation at that time. And it's not, those kinds of mistakes are not confined to the past. We still make them. One case was overturned in Western Australia not very long ago, where a man was convicted of murder on the basis of a plea from a duodenal ulcer had uh, been occasioned by an assault to which he was earlier subjected. Thirteen years after his conviction, when Professor Barry Marshall's evidence uh, who received a Nobel Prize for his discovery revealed that these ulcers are caused by a bacterium and are not the product of an assault, the conviction was set aside. Women have been convicted and on a number of occasions of killing children on the basis of a statistical probability being that three children in the one family dying had to constitute murder. When it's now known, there are far more sophisticated mechanisms to explain the incidents within given family groups. These are the kinds of things against which we must guard ourselves. We must also guard ourselves against the other kinds, the broader kinds of miscarriage of justice to which I will so refer. And finally, we must always remember that the notion of miscarriage of justice is not confined to accused, but we are talking about the miscarriages of justice that affect the community 
and we're talking about miscarriages of justice that affect the individual victims. Thanks. As the only non-lawyer on the panel, I of course have a PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you all for coming. Thank you to RMIT and the Innocence Project for inviting me. Um, it is a pleasure to be here. And uh, that's a hard act to follow, Frank, coming as, as an expert witness. Um, <laughs> uh, because I'm a forensic scientist, here is the obligatory CSI slide. We must all put one up. Um, but I put this up to demonstrate that right now, being in forensic science is this very odd dichotomy. In some regards, we are some of the most popular people on the planet. Um, all these TV shows and documentaries and movies that are showcasing the work that forensic science can do. Um, and the number of university programs and students coming in is fantastic. And then other times we open up the newspaper and see headlines like this. Um, for those of you that aren't aware, uh, there has been a number of wrongful convictions um, that have been uncovered regarding hair analysis in the United States, um, and that led the FBI to conduct a review of 20 years worth of hair comparison, and they recently concluded that in at least 90% of cases the testimony was overstated or in error. Um, and The Guardian in the UK called it a dirty bomb of pseudoscience. Um, which is nice phrasing, uh, but you know that, that's a very uh, confronting statistic. 90% um, of cases is, is large. But around forensic science, there's been um, some rumblings going on for a number of years. While the public perception of forensics is very, very positive, um, the legal and academic perception is not always so. So for the last 30 years, there's been various articles published um, with, with some truly fantastic titles. Um, Check the crystal ball at the courthouse door, um, talking about forensic evidence and whether or not it is reliable. And for forensics, it really came to a head in 2009 um, with what we call the NAS report. This report coming out of the United States is the result of three years of congressional hearings, um, largely arising as a result of innocence project work and the number of, of uh, wrongful convictions that were being uncovered. So they spent three years interviewing forensic scientists, legal professionals, academics, statisticians, psychologists, and they concluded that uh, there is a little bit of work to do in forensic science. One of the most famous quotes, and possibly one of the most damning for us, was, with the exception of nuclear DNA analysis, no forensic method has been shown to rigorously shown to have the capacity to consistently and with a high degree of certainty demonstrate the connection between evidence and individual or source. Basically, what they were saying is, you have not demonstrated to us that your methods, that your techniques, are accurate and reliable. And for some areas, that is true. Um, within the scientific paradigm, any scientific technique that you want to use must be validated. And that means that you must do experiments on it using known samples and demonstrate that the method you are proposing 
is accurate, that you get the right answer. Many of the forensic sciences have not done this to date. They were developed out of a need to investigate crime. They were developed at a time when the scientific paradigm didn't exist like this, validation didn't exist. Um, and we haven't necessarily validated them since. And that leads us to a slight problem in that we don't know our error rates for all cases. Error rates are something that the courts would be very interested to know for a lot of expert evidence. If, as a fingerprint examiner, for example, I said, well, I'm, my personal proficiency is 99%, you'd go, well, she's pretty good at that, we might let her in. If, you, if I said my personal proficiency was 60%, you might have a few questions about how accurate, how reliable my testimony was. Most human, uh, most forensic disciplines, unlike what you see on CSI, are actually done by humans. They're not done by machines. Um, it involves the expert looking at evidence and making a, a subjective decision. In a lot of the forensic scientists, science areas, we, we haven't necessarily taken into account all the time that humans are interesting creatures and sometimes they make mistakes. Sometimes they will get information you know, about the crime, about the suspect that may influence them slightly. And that may affect their judgment in cases. And there have been some very famous uh, miscarriages of justice, I should say infamous, where this has occurred, where the analyst had information that wasn't strictly relevant um, and it caused an error of judgment in the expert testimony. Frank has alluded to the way we report our evidence that juries don't understand it, um, and I, I don't blame them. Likelihood ratios are tough. The way we, we report DNA is, is confusing. Um, it's also confusing that every different discipline uses different words. Um, if you are a shoe print examiner, you'll use the word um, individualization or, or individual characteristics. If you are a document examiner, you will use uh, moderate support for a proposition. If you're a DNA expert, you'll say it is 100 million times more likely. That is tough for a jury to understand the difference between the evidence and what they mean in relation to each other. And in forensic science, there can at times be a lack of research and education. There is no degree program you can do to learn to be a fingerprint expert, or a ballistics expert, or a document examiner. You can't go to university to learn these things. And that makes it very hard. Um, people have to be hired and then trained on the job. In Australia, we're extremely lucky that our National Institute of Forensic Science actually set up those degree programs for the first time. So now we give all our examiners tertiary education they must pass proficiency tests, they must demonstrate their knowledge. But we are one of the few countries in the world that do that. So there are some issues around forensic science. And coming out of the United States, the Innocent Project there, in the first 300 cases they took on and, and demonstrated wrongful conviction with DNA, forensic science testing errors was the second highest incidence. Um, eyewitness was, of course, the first. It is a problem. 
that is something that we need to address as a forensic community. And for some people looking from the outside, this might be the state of forensics. It might seem like we're a bit of a train wreck and, and we, you know, what are we doing? The answer is we are doing an immense amount. Um, we acknowledge that there have been problems in the past. There are cases in Victoria, in Australia, across the United States that demonstrate that. But as a youngish forensic scientist, what I have observed in the 10 years I've been working in the field is an immense cultural change. People within the community are now embracing the fact that we have made errors in the past and we can learn from these and we can fix it. There is no longer that closed community that we, we can't admit, we can't be open, it is we can improve this and we are doing some great work around it. The United States, um, as a result of that National Academy of Sciences report, formed what's called the OSAC. So this is the Organisation of Scientific Area Committees. And they have recruited 600 of the best scientists, statisticians, lawyers, and psychologists from over the world. 600 of them. They fly them into the US six times a year, four times a year. And they spend $12 million a year to fix forensic science. That is a huge investment. Um, the Europeans have programs they're getting about a million euros a year um, in funding. Here in Victoria, um, Victoria Police about four or five years ago had the foresight and, and the, the um, acknowledgement of, of the need for this to set up the office that I work in, the office of the Chief Forensic Scientist. We are a dedicated group of researchers that all we do is look after the scientific health of forensic science and the expert testimony that is coming out of our building. It is our job to make sure that we are producing the best science we can to prevent future miscarriages of justice, wherever we can. And we've acknowledged that what we do is a human discipline, that humans make mistakes, if, and no matter what field it is in, medicine, um, you know, pilots, everything, humans will make mistakes. And we can embrace that and we can put in systems to reduce it wherever we possibly can. And for me, the most exciting thing was the last time, or this year actually, in Washington, for the first time ever, we had an entire conference on error. All the forensic scientists actually got into a room and went, we make errors, what are we going to do about this? So we had Gillian Tully, who is the UK uh, Forensic Science Regulator, talking about how we learn. We had Alistair Ross, um, who was the Director of the National Institute of Forensic Science Australia, talking about where the errors occur. Victoria's own Chief Forensic Scientist, talking about his experience in changing the culture. And Ishiel Dror, who is the world's top cognitive forensic scientist, talking about how we stop these things happening. And the very fact that there was that open acknowledgement and a discussion about what we can do to fix this, I think is, is a wonderful step forward for the entire community. We are getting some error rates. They are very, very preliminary, but it does allow us to inform the courts, to inform um, the police about the reliability of our evidence. And in many, many disciplines, we're finding that the error rates are astonishingly low. 
for fingerprints, a 0.1% error rate. One in a thousand cases they will make an error on. That's very, very small. And we have systems in place where if they do make an error, we go through multiple checks to detect it. Um, some of the areas perhaps need a bit more work. Um, some of these numbers are perhaps higher than you might have guessed initially from, from knowing about forensic science. But the key will be to disclose this information to the court so the jury can evaluate the evidence and evaluate the probative value. In Victoria Police, we are reorganising our systems, our, um, the way our laboratory operates so that we can minimise human factors. We're stripping out context information. Um, so for us forensic scientists, we will no longer know information about cases or about suspects or about any of that. It will make us quite boring people, but it will make the evidence stronger. And there's been a plea from the courts and from a number of legal academics that we need to disclose more information. We should be more transparent with the courts and, and tell them all the information, all the limitations. There is a practice note in Victoria for the Supreme Court that is asking for this information. And so we have modified how we report to courts. If we do not have validation information or error rates, we can disclose that. And that can be um, released to the jury so that they can make their own assessment of the probative value. But the key is communicating appropriately. Making sure that everybody knows that they're not subject to that white coat effect, that expert just trusting what we say, but to tell them the current state of forensic science um, and, and what's happening. It is a very big job reforming the whole of forensic science. It will take a number of years, but we are making excellent inroads. Um, I think even you know, in the last five years, the practices have changed to the point that serious miscarriages of justice are lessened, the risk of them, um, and it's getting better. This is a breakdown of that Innocence Project information um, by discipline for forensic science. And it's notable that the two most commonly observed disciplines, serology, which is the old ABO blood typing, and whether you're a secretor or not, and hair, are no longer performed. We've learned from the past. We've learned that the science can't necessarily support the claims we we're making there. So we don't do it anymore. It's that simple, we're learning. Um, and of course, forensic science may have bad points, but it also has quite exceptional points. Most of the exonerations from the innocence projects overseas have occurred because of a forensic technique, and that is forensic DNA, which has been shown to be valid and reliable. When it is performed correctly, it has immense power um, to exonerate the wrongly convicted, but also to determine um, the, the correct party. So forensic science is a great place to be right now. It is changing so quickly and it is so exciting to be involved. Um, and I think everything we do will help lessen the risk of miscarriage um, more and more throughout the years. So that would be that. Thank you.
a very generous introduction. Thank you very much. Um, and I'm reinforced, Kay, after your um, presentation that we will be calling on you uh, and your office now, now that it's opened up to the defence fraternity, um, to help us deal with those cases when our eyes all get glazed over when we try and understand um, DNA um, and the biology. Uh, because um, the lawyers don't understand it. I'm certain the jurors, juries don't understand it. Um, but we know that that, that office um, is now reaching out more broadly um, to the legal profession. Uh, and I think Frank alluded to this, the way we deal with expert evidence is going to change, whether we have court-appointed um, expert witnesses rather than, in an adversarial system, one expert fighting against another. Um, I think um, there will be reform uh, in the not too distant future. Well, my office um, looks after about two and a half thousand cases every year, um, so we have a big practice, um, and we deal with cases from terrorism to shoplifting. Um, and although overwhelmingly um, most people plead guilty or have a negotiated plea of guilty, there are some people who plead not guilty um, and who are acquitted. Uh, there are some people who plead not guilty and are found guilty and shouldn't be found guilty. And there's a very small proportion of those who plead not guilty should be found um, not guilty, but are found guilty. I want to talk about a case that illustrates that point um, that we came into, um, only at the appeal stage, but the case that should cause some um, concern for all of us that are interested in the justice system. It's a case, unfortunately, where there was an absence of scientific analysis, um, and it involved a case of an aged complaint for a sexual assault. Um, and it was an unusual case because the perpetrator um, was a female teacher uh, and the complainants were eight years old, two of them, at the time of the alleged um, incident. And we came into this case in um, early 2012, the case of Greensill, Josephine Greensill, after she had been convicted in 2010 of multiple counts of sexual assault on those um, children 30 years earlier, um, alleged offending, in 2010, convicted and sentenced to a term of imprisonment, a woman who was aged um, 60 or thereabouts at the time of the conviction. And she spent almost um, two and a half years at the Dane Phyllis Cross Women's Prison, uh, awaiting an appeal. Um, and um, she had various advice after her conviction that uh, because she received a relatively low non-parole period, um, two years and, and um, eight months, that she should simply forget about her appeal um, and that she should, in a sense, cut her losses, accept responsibility for her misconduct, um, play the game, um, and then be released on parole. And because as you, most of you will know, if you are convicted of a sexual assault, um, you must participate in the sex offenders program before you can be considered for parole. And her sister came to us saying, Josephine, um, refused to participate in the sex offenders program because she continued to pro protest her innocence um, and that she would serve her full five-year sentence if need be. And um, of course, uh, 
few people are in that, that particular um, category who are prepared continuing to protest their innocence to, full, to serve their full sentence. And so that immediately rang some alarm bells um, in, in, in our minds as to um, what the case was about and what we needed to do to explore whether in fact we had an arguable um, defence. And um, uh, the, case, um, the case really revolved around two of the complainants who were then in their um, mid to late thirties um, coming to court to say that on a particular night, 30 years earlier, um, that Josephine Greensill had um, sexually assaulted both of them um, at the same time whilst they were uh, staying in a tent in, in her backyard. Josephine Greensill, in fact, was a friend, family friend of one of the complainants um, and had babysat them from time to time uh, and um, had, had a relationship broad relationship with the family, both as a teacher and as a family friend. She was a married woman, uh, her husband was home at the time, and she'd had a young child. Um, and in 2007, uh, the complainants approached the police to say that they were a victim of sexual assault um, uh, 30 years earlier. Um, the trial ran on the basis of their complaint. They corroborated each other. They said they were witnesses to each other's um, uh, wrongdoing, Josephine Greensill's wrongdoing, um, and there was no other evidence called to, um, to corroborate their complaints. Um, she made a categoric, categoric denial in her record of interview, and she didn't give evidence at her trial. She relied on the fact that um, uh, um, she had denied it interview um, and in the absence of calling any other evidence um, she was found guilty and convicted. Um, what we of course discovered was that um, in 2007 her husband had been killed in an industrial accident whilst working at the railways um, and one of the complainants was working at the railways became aware of the, um, the accident because she had received a substantial compensation payout, um, something in each to the tune of a million dollars. Um, and um, uh, one of the complainants who was working at the railways um, then became aware that Josephine Greens Greensill, um, um, having uh, changed her name through marriage, um, was in fact her for his former teacher. Um, and um, having made, um, having discovered that fact, uh, he then spoke to his former um, classmate, um, saying, do you remember that time um, we were at Josephine Greensill's house um, and she sexually assaulted um, us uh, on that occasion? And that was the context in which the complaint then was made. Um, what, had all, what had happened, um, what had further happened is that um, and this often happens in sexual assault cases, particularly age complaints. The question of um, motivation for late complaints um, often arises. Um, and they were questioned about whether they had lodged any claim for compensation. They told the jury that they hadn't, but in fact they'd gone to see uh, one of Melbourne's leading um, compensation lawyers in this area um, and had um, instructed that person to issue writs. 
So they um, were untruthful in that evidence that they'd given the jury. Um, and they said that they hadn't spoken to each other when they'd made their statements, that they'd made them individually um, and separately and not aware of what the contents of the other person's statement was. And uh, the police officer who gave evidence, in fact, um, described how uh, that one of them had asked for the other's phone number um, and wanted to see their statement and contradicted what they'd said about how their statements had been made uh, and um, uh, it was also apparent that in the compensation claim that, uh, that one of the complainants had seen a, a psychologist for that person. Um, so um, uh, Josephine Greensfield, Greensfield had then, um, after she'd been convicted, spoken to uh, an expert appeal barrister about whether um, there was any prospect of success, successful appeal, and that barrister said no, because this was essentially a jury question. Uh, it was oath on oath, um, and the um, uh, jury had determined, uh, determined that uh, um, she was guilty, and therefore um, there would be no miscarriage of justice. Um, what um, was also curious about the evidence of the complainants was that as eight-year-olds, as pre-pubescent eight-year-olds, um, they described in detail the nature of the sexual act with Miss Greensill, and both had said um, that they had ejaculated during the course of the, um, uh, the contact. There's no evidence from any um, paediatrician or any other expert about whether um, eight-year-old pre-pubescent children could ejaculate. Um, and um, despite the implausibility of that comment, um, nevertheless, uh, um, it was introduced in, into evidence. Uh, and as I said, she was ultimately convicted. Um, what she didn't have, of course, was the opportunity of causing her, uh, calling her husband. There was a forensic disadvantage to her because her husband had passed away and he was in um, immediate and close proximity to where this act was said to have taken place. Um, particularly, um, as the defence, not particularly on appeal, was saying that there had been some collusion between the two complainants. Um, uh, in any event, um, what happened was that uh, after she'd been convicted, uh, they then uh, immediately pursued their claims for compensation. And fatally, what one of them had failed to describe in their um, recounting of their trauma to the uh, psychiatrist was that there, in fact, had been any penetration in the way that they described during the trial. And so that there, um, there was able to be called on her appeal evidence uh, of the fact that, um, critically, one of the complainants um, had not described any act of penetration. And, and, then, and therefore, really, um, had given inconsistent accounts, critical, in very critical terms. Um, so, uh, after almost two and a half years, and just before she was eligible for parole, um, the matter proceeded to the Court of Appeal, um, and the Court of Appeal was so incredulous as to the nature of the allegations, the improbability, implausibility of what had occurred, having regard to the evidence, the subsequent evidence um, that was produced in the compensation claims to the absence of penetration in the 
complainant statement and the um, forensic disadvantage that had been presented to Ms Greensill, uh, the Court of Appeal said immediately, without providing me a detailed um, written judgment, that they would, they would um, dismiss the, uh, uh, or would, would quash the conviction um, and not uh, an antiverdict of acquittal and not order a retrial. What had also become apparent in the case was that the, 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 in terms of the collusion was that the nature of the evidence that both um, boys or men had given was that um, the language and the phraseology that had been used in describing the nature of the sexual act was almost identical. Um, and um, the court said um, that, um, uh, that they were concerned about that prospect of collusion particularly um, in light of the other factors. Um, so, um, uh, um, after Josephine was um, acquitted by direction, um, she of course, um, and I might say this, having spent the whole two and a half years in protective custody, and because she was a child sex offender, having been humiliated and demeaned um, for every single day of her sentence by both other prisoners and prison officers, um, she sought to be recompensed um, through an extra payment from the government. The argument being um, that, through the Attorney General, the, the argument being, of course, that this prosecution should never have been um, initiated in the absence of um, evidence medical evidence about the improbability of the sexual act being conducted in the way that had been described. Um, in view of the fact that the two complainants had colluded in um, the manufacture of their statements um, and, uh, and other factors that, that gave rise to what was a miscarriage of justice. Now, um, it won't surprise you to say that, of course, her application for an extra payment has been unsuccessful. Um, the government saying, of course, that the police had acted always in good faith when pursuing this. Now, Josephine Greensill was lucky. She had a sister who um, was unwavering in her support for her, um, uh, remained completely faithful to her throughout this ordeal, and was able to fund um, her appeal. Was able to fund um, a private investigator who had discovered um, that after the complainants had given evidence, one of, one of whom had said, I'll never be able to become involved in the school again in view of what's happened to me, the trauma that I had to endure, um, discovered after the trial um, that uh, that complainant was a member of the school, his local school council. Um, the second complainant saying, I'll never be able to have children view of what's happened to me, having been abused in this form, um, discovered after the trial um, that his partner was pregnant with their first child. Uh, so uh, much of the evidence really came to light, that, uh, certainly at the conclusion of the, or after the trial had concluded, um, um, and in the form of revelation through the compensation claim, um, but as I said, Josephine Greensill was lucky that she, that she had a sister who, um, who was able to 
public funded for appeal. Now we get tens and tens of cases every year um, where people claim miscarriage of justice. Um, the difficulty of course is that firstly they're incarcerated um, overwhelmingly. Secondly, they have to rely on public uh, funding for their cases. Um, and uh, thirdly, where appeal periods have almost invariably lapsed. And so there are many obstacles that we face in terms of firstly examining those cases, um, almost always on a pro bono basis, um, and then um, being able to commit resources to pursuing those appeals. And that's why this project um, through RMIT and the Richard Park Foundation is so critically important. Um, there's a cohort of people here that can um, both um, through the student population um, and the uh, academic support that's provided that can help at least examine those cases. I think Frank might confirm this having sat on the Court of Appeal on many, many occasions that the um, Court of Appeal, if they think there's a miscarriage of justice, will almost always um, allow that argument to take place that even if it's significantly out of time. We know that there's legislation uh, that's proposed in, in Tasmania and there is legislation in place in South Australia um, for criminal appeals review um, program and I'd certainly be keen to see that sort of program be developed um, in, a, in a more structured way in Victoria through the legislature um, whether that takes place in the um, near or, or medium term future, I don't know, but um, there is a list that I mentioned for that. There's a disparity in resourcing cases now. Um, Chris mentioned terrorism cases. Uh, well, um, you're prosecuting the terrorism case in the current environment, you will be equipped with every piece of technology resourcing. Um, uh, resources from the Australian Federal Police, the intelligence community, and every other institution in prosecuting the case. When you're acting for an accused person, um, then you have a fair bonus defence, usually, and usually publicly funded through Victoria Legal Aid. The disparity of resourcing, um, I think, in 2015 is greater than I've ever seen in my 33 plus years of practice. And it alarms me, um, and I'll just conclude um, the, the description of one case. You will remember um, that uh, just prior to the centenary of ANZAC, um, the ANZAC Day celebrations, um, there was an argument that two men had been arrested um, who were about to commit a horrendous act on ANZAC Day and understandably the community was um, horrified. One of those um, boys that we had for 18 years and two months was arrested um, and placed on an interim preventative detention order um, and placed in um, the maximum security unit at Barham Prison. Um, that's usually reserved for people who are convicted of serious criminal offending. Um, he was um, ultimately transferred out of there, um, but um, uh, he had an association with uh, one of the other suspects who still is awaiting trial, but that's all he had. There was no evidence of any telephone communication, no listening device material, no static surveillance, no other evidence that he um, was involved in any act or 
preparation for any act of terrorism other than his association um, with uh, the other um, suspect who's still awaiting trial. He spent four months on remand um, as a protected prisoner, prisoner in maximum security environment. Uh, and um, I, I only um, was released um, when the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions had become um, engaged in the case um, and where it was realised that there was a complete paucity of evidence um, supporting the charges. Um, now that's caused, um, I don't know whether it's irreparable damage, but it's caused significant damage to him as an 18 year old. Um, it's certainly alienated um, his community, his immediate community, um, and um, uh, it's caused a lot of disquiet amongst those within the justice system that are attuned to these issues. Uh, there was not um, ultimately a miscarriage of justice there, um, but um, there was one that was in the making. And unless we, as a community, make sure there's an equality of arms in both prosecution, and, and I'm the first to say prosecution, need to be adequately equipped and resourced, but unless that happens with the defence, we are running the risk of um, miscarriages of justices, uh, justice um, being perpetrated against um, innocent uh, civilians. So um, I want to thank you, um, Chris and RMIT and the Bridge of Hope Foundation, particularly, uh, for inviting me to present to you this evening. First of all, thank you for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to speak tonight. Now, I'm not an academic or legal theorist, but I do want to share with you the experience that I've had as a lawyer of some 19 years. Now, in terms of my practice, I'm involved in various areas of law, including civil litigation, family, and of course, criminal law as well. And what you might describe a general suburban practitioner who's recently shifted from Brunswick to Doncaster. <laughs> now, during my time and continuing, I've had the fortune of meeting people from various ethnic backgrounds, majority migrant backgrounds, recently arrived in Australia, and people with various different difficulties. My experience is that everyone who's come to me and who's migrated to Australia, come here with a wish for a better life, and uh, in those endeavors, unfortunately, have somehow had contact with the law. Now, having come to Australia as a migrant myself, I understood at a very early age that, or what in fact motivated me to study law, wasn't so much the altruistic idea of trying to help others, or making a lot of money necessarily, but rather my appreciation that what's important is, is to understand the law in order to protect oneself. And it's in that context that I became a lawyer. As His Honor Mr. Justice Vincent said, the law really plays a very critical part in the safeguarding of the values of our society. And 
my approach has always been that when a client comes and approaches me, obviously I listen to the problem, try to put myself into their position, and then try to understand what it is that they need, what sort of a system they are after. And once I can emphasize and understand where they're coming from, it's where I then look towards the law to find a solution. In that sense, I believe that rather than looking strictly at what particular legal avenue might be available for a given case, I've always had the idea that the law is there to help. So if someone has a problem, we try to see what sort of law, what way can be found to assist the person. Now in terms of the Farajama case, I was approached by his mother and she obviously felt for her son and she was convinced of his innocence. I must admit initially when I heard that very competent uh, criminal lawyers had been acting on his behalf and he had lost the trial, I was somewhat <coughs> pessimistic or suspicious. I thought maybe it was a lack of understanding on her part. Obviously she was Somali, uh, she came as a Somali refugee, not familiar with the law, never been in contact with the law until the unfortunate events that had happened to her son. But as a result of her pleas, I decided to see him. And he was in a prison some two and a half hours away. <clears throat> I made my way and spoke with him listen to his account and when speaking to him again he certainly protested his innocence and said that the most serious crime of which he had been accused he was innocent of. Now at that point in time I must admit I was certainly accepting of his protestations of innocence and I was wanting to help him but what I did do, and it's something that we always told at law school, as a criminal lawyer we shouldn't, is to ask specifically and directly whether a particular person is innocent or not. Now, I asked him that question because for my own purposes, I wanted to know. And for me, it was really a question as to whether I was going to help him or not. So, as it turns out, I asked him and he made, a, made an oath on the holy book and uh, again confirmed that he was innocent and from that point I was determined to assist him. Now, I spoke to some barristers initially and the feedback I got was that it would be difficult. At that point in time, we hadn't delved very deeply into the trial transcript and so on, but again, there was this initial so I decided that it might be as a logical sort of uh, way of trying to come to a conclusion, contact the prosecution, which I did, and discuss the DNA uh, evidence, which was the sole piece of evidence upon which he was convicted. Now, you, you, you understand and you know that uh, Ultimately, Mr. Jama was acquitted, and in fact, 
unlike the case to which Mr. Starry just referred, he was fortunate to get some recompense from the state of Victoria. But, but what I want to share with you is my sort of analysis of three reasons why I consider that miscarriages of justice can and do from time to time happen. The first one, which I think is probably the most obvious, is that the prosecution has some material purpose and that that is what's driving the prosecution and attempt to mount a conviction. Now, I don't think that this sort of event occurs often in Australia, if at all. In fact, I would say it would be rather rare. Now, the other matter which I think has more application to the Farajama case is prejudices and stereotyping, which does unfortunately occur. Now, and in, in that context, I think, particularly in the Farah case, when one had regard to the publications in the newspaper around the time of the trial, where he was described and his family was described as liars when they said that on the particular day in question when the incident, the rape was said to have occurred, he said he was at home with his father who was ill. And they were reciting verses from the Quran. Now, this is, in my understanding, it's that sort of prejudice which I believe has led to the various fatal errors that have been made and the lack of consideration of the real facts in the case. As Mr. Vincent has clearly identified in his most eloquent and detailed report, there was a whole serious comedy of errors. When you looked at the actual facts, there was nothing there which was supportive of Mr. Jama having committed the crime. Against all of those pieces of evidence was only the DNA evidence. But the jury, the prosecution, everyone seemed to have been like blinded by that particular evidence. And unfortunately, I believe that one of the reasons for that is that there were prejudices in place which hadn't been put aside. I also think that, and that's, I'm talking from my own experience and over the years and analysis of cases, I also believe that sometimes prosecutorial attitudes are very casual. It's the sort of typical, she'll be right mate. Rather than looking at each case properly, it's some sort of uh, factory process people are being processed rather than their cases properly looked at. And certainly anyone involved in the criminal justice system, we're not machine operators, but we're lawyers who have a responsibility to try to ensure that our clients or the accused person is given a fair trial and that that person's guilt or innocence is determined. It's not the job of the prosecution to get someone. It's to expose whether a particular person is guilty or not by looking at the evidence critically. 
and the same applies for the fence. What, what I believe is one of the things that has happened in the JAMA case and probably happened in other cases is that prosecuting agencies simply adopt procedures. In the, in the JAMA case, obviously, we got the various DNA analysis and uh, DNA results. Whether those results were actually properly understood, it's a different matter altogether. I mean, I'm the first to confess as a lawyer, I'm not in a position to analyze and understand DNA percentages and DNA analysis. Very difficult. So I believe, however, it's not enough to simply rely on someone's scientific or so-called scientific research and results as a basis of not taking responsibility for your own decisions and not thinking that it's all right to simply continue the process of prosecuting someone without wanting to be the one who says, well, look, there are questions to be asked. And I totally concurred when Mr. Vincent said it wasn't until Mr. Sonnet of the OPP asked the critical questions. But those questions should have been asked a long time before because they were obvious and clear. So what I'm really trying to say is that in the criminal justice system in particular, there's no room for laziness. It's not good enough. I do civil cases, as I've said as well. And look, in civil litigation, sometimes it's said, well, look, we get a result. We get put to the end of the matter. We get a result, it's good enough. That can never be good enough in a criminal case because someone's future depends on it. People fortunately don't get don't get killed anymore. There's no more uh, capital punishment, but they get imprisoned. So the consequences are very serious. Now, I think that this particular program, Bridge of Hope, it's a fantastic opportunity for all of you to contribute to change and to give the importance that needs to be afforded to any accused in this country. It's for that reason that I'm very proud and happy to devote my time in any way that I can assist. I hope you got some benefit from what I've had to say and I apologize for any shortcomings in my presentation, but that's really what I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. It sounds like an incredibly mixed bag when you read that one. <laughs> um, thank you for having me and um, what a honor to follow. I have to share with the audience tonight that I've just learned that Justice Vincent is the new big boss of the commission where I work. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people and their elders past and present. I work with Andrew Jacobos, who's the Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People. He's the first uh, Commissioner appointed uh, for Aboriginal Children and the only one in the country at the moment. I'm taking a slightly different slant tonight, I'm just going to highlight some of the systemic justice issues facing Aboriginal children in Australia. Uh, it's timely because Australia will be uh, Australia's Human Rights Record is up for uh, review by the international community on the 9th of November. 
uh, when it um, participates in the United Nations Universal Periodic Review uh, in Geneva. Now, this, some of the key issues that are going to be raised at the uh, UPR are the over-imprisonment uh, of our Aboriginal population, particularly the over-imprisonment of the over-incarceration of Aboriginal children in the justice system and the over-representation of Aboriginal children in our Alzheimer's care system. So, yes, you may well be aware of this, but many people aren't, that the rate of incarceration of Aboriginal people in Australia is one of the highest in the world. It's higher than the rate of incarceration of blacks in South Africa during apartheid. So it really is a major human rights crisis. When talking about children, which is my focus, I find it difficult to distinguish between guilt and innocence, and so that's why the miscarriage of justice is taking on a different lens in my talk. Um, so at what point do we say that the troublesome, or troublesome difficult um, behaviour of a traumatised child makes him no longer innocent? It surprises many people to learn that the minimum age of criminal responsibility in Australia, in Victoria, is just 10 years old. It's two years below what the uh, Committee on the Convention on the Rights of the Child tells us is the absolute minimum acceptable age of international law. And it's about four years below the average, uh, in, the, in most of the countries around the world, the average age around the world is about 14 years. So we're behind countries like Sweden, which may be obvious, at 15, but Germany, China, Japan, 14, and many others have higher, higher ages. Invariably, when I talk about the fact that I work with children in detention, people immediately ask me, am I talking about children in asylum, asylum seeker detention, immigration detention? And so somehow as a society it seems we don't know about the fact that there's a number, there are small numbers, yes, but there are a number of children we incarcerate in our own youth detention centres. Somehow we can excuse it by saying, oh, that's just a kid's detention centre, but I don't know if you've seen one. Um, seen our one in Victoria. I think it's harrowing, personally, but it's just like a prison. Uh, so universal rights don't seem to apply sometimes. And we set a completely different bar for children that come into contact with the law at a very, very young age. So we've conducted extensive research on the psychological impact of uncertain detention on asylum seeker children, which again is entirely appropriate. But we don't seem to know what impact we may be having by isolating children in our own youth, our youth justice detention centres. I asked several forensic psychologists in the last year, no one could tell me or point to any Australian research that might tell us actually what are we doing to the human brain of a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old child when we put him in a cell for hours on end. Uh, do we say it's okay to do this because that child has committed a crime? What if we knew he had suicidal thoughts when we put him in that cell? A history of violent abuse or neglect from his parents? What if he had a severe cognitive impairment? Or if he had no sense of time? So somehow it seems okay to treat some children more harshly than we would treat our own because of their own abusive or traumatic background. And that to me just seems fundamentally wrong. Surely we would hope for a higher standard of care for these often traumatic, traumatised children. So for Aboriginal children, which is the focus of my work, they come into contact with the law at a younger age than their non-Aboriginal peers, and they return to justice more quickly. So by incarcerating children, we're also setting a path for Aboriginal children, a path for their future. They're more likely to come into the prison system as an adult, 
and it's more likely then that their children will be incarcerated. Nationally, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children comprise about 60% of our youth detention population. So 60%. And yet, as you'll know, the Aboriginal population in Australia is just about around 3%. So this is despite the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which was now 25, nearly 25 years ago, and despite Australia's commitment to international human rights treaties, like the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and secession to the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. In Victoria, it's also despite the enactment of human rights legislation eight years ago that specifically promotes <coughs> and protects Aboriginal identity and cultural rights. So tragically, things are worse now than they, are, than they were 25 years ago uh, when the Royal Commission handed down its recommendations. Our rate of incarceration, particularly in Victoria, has got significantly worse. Um, Victoria's record, well, Victoria's record for Aboriginal incarceration run best in the country, and certainly our numbers of in, um, incarcerating children are very low. And I do want to acknowledge the really great work that the youth justice uh, people do do and the Parkville does do. Uh, but we still see a massive overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in our own youth detention centres. An Aboriginal child is 13 times more likely to be incarcerated than a non Aboriginal child. So, just to put that in, in numbers, we, we have visitors that go into the detention centres once a month, independent visitors, to check on the children or ask them questions how they're going. Um, and the latest number, or the numbers for the beginning of the year was about 20% of children in Parkfield Youth Detention Centre were Aboriginal. Um, the numbers for the last two months was about 25%, so about a quarter of the children detained in Parkfield Detention Centre are Aboriginal. And that's against a lower percentage of Aboriginal people in our Victorian population at only about 1%. So despite the recommendations of the Royal Commission, um, the system continues to separate Aboriginal children uh, from their families, from their community and from their kinship networks. Another staggering trend is the high rates of children on remand in our detention centres. So over the past three months we've seen that about 75% of all children incarcerated in the Parkfield Detention Centre are on demand, so they're unsentenced. Most of those children won't go on to receive a sentence. And by law they are entitled to the presumption of innocence and yet they are treated in the same way, much the same way as the children that are sentenced. So you can see the distinction of guilt and innocence in that context is completely blurred. They could be isolated, they could be handcuffed, um, and they are sometimes ineligible for some of the rehabilitative programs that sentenced children might be entitled to. So we know that children on remand, well, they're less likely to receive a custodial sentence, but on the other hand, the research says the fact of remand can increase the chance of being sentenced. And there are other damaging factors for being remanded, including association with negative peers, and disconnection from community and culture, particularly the Aboriginal population. So I once had a, a small child who was 12, I think, 13, say to me that he pled guilty to something that he didn't do because he was so desperate just to have the matter over and done with. Get it done, get home. It made me wonder who in the system has the incentive to verify whether the, um, the evidence does support the guilty pleas that children make. This is particularly true when we're talking about children that are subject to child protection orders. Um, so children that don't have an incentive for loving parent helping them navigate the legal process and understand uh, the advice from the lawyer. Um, we have enormous respect for the hard work that the child protection workers do, but would they advocate for their child, their, their client, like a parent would advocate for their own child? Um, we've had um, 
requests, for example, um, the child protection worker has to give consent to the child's under 14 for um, uh, fingerprints or DNA samples. Um, so would, would the child protection worker know or understand um, what sort of advice should be taken in response to that? Um, or to simply just tick the box and move on to the next client. Another concerning issue, which we've just touched on then, is that the, the high rate of dual clients, so that's child protection clients that come into contact with the justice system and subject to both orders. There's a massive, um, massive rate, or massive correlation in those numbers. The Youth Parole Board has told us about 60% of children detained on remand or sentence have been the subject, or are currently the subject of child protection orders. Uh, and just for the Aboriginal children, it is noteworthy that they're significantly overrepresented in the out-of-home care system. So we're seeing really adverse effect there for Aboriginal children that are going into out-of-home care and they're coming into contact with the law through policing in their residential care system and then ending up being sentenced and ultimately the trajectory continues. It's all sounding very depressing, so I'll try and finish on a positive note. I touched on the um, really great work that Parkville, that is happening in the Parkville Detention Centre, specifically around education. Which you might be surprised didn't used to happen, but they've started, um, Parkville College Department of Education has started an education program. So the children are happily going to school and wanting to learn. Um, that used to happen. And particularly for the Aboriginal children, there is a Koori Cultural Program run by an Aboriginal elder um, that is seeking to help build um, cultural knowledge, cultural connection, um, better sense of identity for the Aboriginal children that are being disconnected. And I think I'll probably leave it there because I think timing is tight. Thank you very much. I am conscious of the fact that time is against us. Um, we were going to, this is where I exercise my discretion, but we're going to have time for questions. But I think what we might try and do, rather than um, do that is draw it to a conclusion, but encourage you if you wish to, in the session afterwards, to raise any queries you might have with any of the speakers whilst they remain. On behalf of all those present, I'd like to thank the panellists for taking the time out of their very, very busy schedules to share their most valuable insights with us this evening. It's been a very interesting session. I'd now like to invite to the stage the Executive Director of the Bridges Hope Foundation, Vanessa Tippy, and the Deputy Dean of RMIT School of Global Urban and Social Studies, Dr. Michelle Reuters, to present the panelists with a small token of our appreciation. As they go about their Past, so I'm now going to sing their praises. <laughs> Without these two women, the Bridge of Hope Innocent Initiative at RMIT would not exist, and tonight's event would not have been possible. Vanessa is a foremost authority on innocent projects in this country and brings experience from both Australia's first innocent project at Griffith University and Victoria's first innocent project at the University of Melbourne to RMIT, where we are tonight. Michelle's insight, drive and dedication has ensured the Innocent Initiative's successful establishment at RMIT 
and with the assistance of Dr. Greg Stratton, um, who brings experience to the Salinger Centre Innocence Project in Western Australia, its continuing development and operation as much as a much needed review body of last resort for the wrongfully convicted. to one, one um, structure or the other. Um, we, I, I'm attracted to the, um, to the South Australian Tasmanian models because it, um, it provides an op opportunity for overview, overview um, by the courts. Um, and I don't think um, as yet the Tasmanian model has, is in place. I stand to be corrected there and the South Australian model's in its embryonic stage. So we don't know how it's going to play out, how successful they'll be. But, um, uh, I, and I don't know whether there's any impediment to having the two, the two forms. Um, so, as I said, I'm not wedded to one or another. I think the opportunity of reviewing cases is important in whatever format. Any other questions? This is an open question in relation to the rights of the child. I heard the reference to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and I'd just like to talk about two children because recently I was asked to give an advice in relation to the United Nations Convention. One was a 14-year-old boy, one was a 14-year-old girl. A 14-year-old boy sit in a custody battle in the family court. I do not want to live with my father. He threatened to kill my mother. He has beaten me up. The judge said he had to spend 50% of his time with the father. <coughs> the 14-year-old girl said basically the same thing that uh, my father has sexually abused me. I do not want to spend time with him. 
and she was ignored. And uh, she was subsequently attacked by her father uh, and by another male person. And she now has developed AIDS because one of the perpetrators was HIV positive. She was 14 years of age. The judge said that she had to spend 50% of the time with the father. There seems to be a presumption in the courts in this country that children of a certain age are not allowed to give evidence, and if they say anything at all, they are ignored. And I'd just like to put this as an open question. Should we have the system revised so children can be listened to? I had a case in uh, Kamani, but might remember briefly an AIDS addiction case where an eight-year-old boy was told he wasn't allowed to give evidence. And uh, the, the court had a, a social worker speak to him who gave evidence that at the age of eight years of age, uh, he was uh, incapable of giving sound evidence. The child spoke three and a half languages, the other half being Swiss-German. He, he was Swiss and uh, he had an interest in, in, in reading financial pages. The judge, after hearing that, then allowed him to give evidence, and his evidence was taken into account in the determination. I'm just wondering if something could be said to the judiciary that children have rights and they should be heard. Any comments from our panel? Yeah, um, as the only person to be associated with the judiciary here, I suppose I'd better respond. <laughs> the, um, there is, in fact, no impediment to children getting, giving evidence, either sworn or unsworn. Um, the youngest child whose evidence I permitted to be received in a court um, was just under four years of age. And that was a circumstance in which there had been um, a re the, the child had returned home uh, to uh, her mother after visit to the separated father. She said uh, something to her mother that gave her the impression that the child had been interfered with. The mother had, with considerable presence of mind, didn't pursue the matter, but immediately contacted the local police, who then arranged for an experienced um, police member to speak to the child. So within a very short period of time, the, uh, a woman who had considerable experience in, in conducting these late tape inquiries spoke to the child. And she asked her a number of questions. And among them were such questions as, and this was regarded as a source of unreliability of the child and in argument before me, do you know the difference between the truth and a lie? And the child said, yes. And the question was then, does anybody tell you lies? And she said, mummy tells me lies. 
to the windows mummy tin you've asked, to the mummy read stories to me. Said, Are they lies? And the child said, Well, they're not true. <laughs> and the police member then said to the child, does, does Daddy live at home? And she said, No. So why doesn't Daddy live at home? He said, Mummy and Daddy didn't live happily ever after. <laughs> and they said, well, this child is just too young to be able to describe what happened to her. And I said, no way. Uh, so there is no impediment. You will find uh, attitudes and a certain level of ignorance among, among members of the condition. They, they, are not always aware of just how much um, knowledge children possess and how, how much they can absorb. We constantly underestimate their capacities in that regard. Um, and I think there is, an, there is a need for increased training and understanding. But I was surprised to find that it would be carried to the extreme that it was in the examples that you used, uh, you referred us to it, and, and trust that that's at least a depleting uh, uh, scenario in, in our handling of these cases. But there is no technical impediment. Um, nowadays in Victoria, we have a whole bunch of mechanisms, including um, the, the vape tape processes, and the, even those uh, are being tailored to make sure that the child gets his or her version out uh, as effectively and uh, as possible without being subjected to uh, fear and harassment and potential humiliation of court processes and the aggravation of the damage that's occasioned by exposure to those processes. I think we had one last question, perhaps from the blue shirt, black blue shirt. I've got a question for Julie. Uh, how does the career court process benefit Aboriginal defendants and are there any other programs that are working to improve justice outcomes for those people? Thank you. I, I cut myself short so I didn't get to highlight some of the positive things that are happening. The career court was an initiative um, following the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody um, to try and make the justice system more culturally appropriate more culturally sensitive for Aboriginal people uh, with the overall aim of trying to reduce the number of Aboriginal people coming into the jail system. Um, so just very briefly, because I know we're short of time, um, for children there's about, um, I think now about 11 or 12 um, Koori Court, uh, children, Koori Court, Children's Court in the Magistrates Court in Victoria. Um, it's, they can only come before that court if they've pled guilty, but the way it's set up, it's more like a round table conversation, so it's like a circle sentencing court where you've got everyone sitting around a table um, rather than having the magistrate up on a, up on a bench. You've got Aboriginal elders that participate in the process. Um, and it's a really completely different process. I think it's a process that would be great for all children, not just Aboriginal children, but it's also um, um, for Aboriginal children. They confront their elders and they find that quite intimidating because of the high respect that they have for those elders. Um, so they don't all elect to go before that process. They do find it quite intimidating. So the same laws apply, it's just a different um, process. It also just gives the Aboriginal community some, um, some much greater participation in the process that's affecting their children and the adult courts, but 
Um, so there's more community control, it's more culturally appropriate, um, it's forming greater relationships for um, with the Aboriginal community and the court system. So it has a whole range of other benefits quite apart from any potential um, long-term impacts on recidivism which are yet to be seen. And so the other question, oh, uh, other positives. The other thing I would like to mention is the um, the Aboriginal Justice Forum, which is where I've come from today, that's a been a really positive initiative which has brought the government together with the Aboriginal community to try and, um, again, address all the injustices or the issues in the justice system for Aboriginal people. Again, that's been an initiative following the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Death and Custody. But what it's doing is it's forging relationships and partnerships and giving some level of um, self-determination and control to the Aboriginal community so that they're participating in the decisions and the changes that are make, um, being proposed for the justice system. So there's a lot that does go on that's really positive that unless you're working or involved in that space you might not know about. And the over, over, overarching change that I see over sort of the last 10 years is a greater recognition um, of the importance of culture and cultural connection and, and kinship connection for Aboriginal people. Um, and a greater display of culture and cultural pride from Aboriginal people. I certainly see a lot of both of those things in my travels. We had some young people at the Aboriginal Justice Forum today who gave up and who stood up and gave a presentation to the, the forum. So these are top community leaders and heads of all the government departments and the young people stood up and said, the young Aboriginal people, and told the forum what was important to them. And the two things, um, the two most important things of the first group were Aboriginal, they, connecting with their Aboriginal identity and greater le level of education. Um, so there's some really positive changes, um, developments in Aboriginal justice. I felt like I painted all the negatives and much more. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Oh, we've got a few more. Um, perhaps one last one. That really is the last one. Um, I just have a
think just do some questions. Um, uh, if we could have a Commonwealth-wide commission, uh, it would obviously be better in the sense that we have a larger, more stable organisation capable of doing a variety of things. The difficulty has been in this and in other areas, and forensic science has been, on, been a classic example of it. The Commonwealth has been trying to disengage from, from their involvement. In fact, the Commonwealth um, withdrew entirely from the funding of the National Institute of Forensic Science, which created enormous problems. The chances of actually getting something done at that level um, are, I think it's pretty problematic, and that, that bothers me. I prefer to see something done, whether we do it in terms of the alteration of our, our state legislation to enable a different kind of review process to occur at the appellate level, or, uh, or we do it otherwise. But uh, I, I, I like you, I'd love, much love to prefer to see this and a whole bunch of other issues dealt with it uh, sensibly at a national level in a country the size of ours than, than we have. Can I finish by referring to what I regard as the most significant case where justice miscarried in this state to which no one ever adverts. And it related to an incident which became quite famous some years ago called the Salt Nightclub killings, where a number of young Vietnamese people were convicted of murder of other young Vietnamese people following an incident which commenced in the vicinity of the Salt Nightclub in South Yarra. It took four years for the legal processes to go through before a trial was conducted of the six accused in that, that particular matter. During, they were all teenagers at the time that uh, they were arrested, and they all remained in custody throughout the entire process. So at the end of four years, there was a trial, then there was a subsequent at an appeal, and it was approximately six and a half years later that they actually got before the Court of Appeal. So they had been in custody the entire time. Three of those six people were acquitted by the Court of Appeal on the basis that there had not been a case made out against them. They had been merged effectively into the totality of the scene and an appropriate discrimination was never made. They spent over six years in custody almost. And I haven't heard in discussions on this couch of justice anyone ever mentioned. Well that does draw it to an end and I'm going to
invite everyone to join us for some refreshments outside and to keep the discussion flowing. And please, um, I've been directed five different ways <laughs> on saying let's bring to a close. And um, I'd like to thank you all for your attention. Thank you.